Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Ian Turvell, the CMO of Freeborn and Peters. Ian oversees marketing and business development, including strategy, communications, digital media, PR, and outreach. His 20-year career has been in professional services and technology marketing. A graduate of Oxford and the University of Rochester, he is both a U.S. and U.K. citizen. Ian, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into who you are personally? Yes, most certainly. I'm very glad to be with you today. And uh, my career has been one that's been focused very much on uh, the marketing of professional services and of technology as a whole, uh, and typically focused on very particular industries. Uh, During the course of my career, uh, I've worked for several organizations, which can be said to have focused on very, very particular uh, industry vertical niches. Uh, For example, I worked for Fair Isaac Corporation, of course, which is the originator of the FICO score. And a company that probably many people have not been, uh, they're probably not aware of, but uh, they probably, if they've ever had any kind of car accident, they've they've had some interaction with a company based in Chicago called CCC Information Services, which is uh, focused on providing technology solutions to the automotive claims uh, industry. And I've been working for Freeborn and Peters for approximately the past uh, four and a half years. Uh, The first time I've had the opportunity to venture into the legal realm, uh, it's proven to be very different, very exciting, uh, but I've also been able to draw over many of the disciplines uh, that I've learned elsewhere into this new role. And I think in that regard, it's uh, proven to be a great uh, boon for all involved. Fantastic. Sounds very interesting. And, and of course, your your background, I'm sure, is really is, is quite helpful in your work. It's good to bring a different perspective. I think undoubtedly, you know, uh, as people, as the, the folks at this firm were looking for a new director of marketing, and now I serve as the chief marketing officer, uh, they wanted someone who thought of things from a little uh, different standpoint and uh, bringing that experience of what it is to focus on a very particular set of customers and to understand how we can be most successful um, is is one, is a, is a discipline that uh, Freeborn has has learned and developed over time, uh, and equally one that I'm seeing used increasingly within the legal industry as a whole. So I think this uh, definitely reflects something of the direction of the, of, the, of the legal profession. Definitely agree. Ian, you recently wrote a paper, Reinventing the Law Firm Business Model, uh, Making the Most of Business Development Opportunities and long-term, Driving Long-Term Growth. In the introduction of that uh, paper, it references legal the legal marketplace as being in constant evolution and talks about establishing a new normal. From your chair, uh, what does that new normal look like? Yes, yeah, certainly. So, obviously, the legal profession has one that's been is one that's been based on a very simple model, which is you you bill as many hours as you can justify, uh, you do a so do so at a rate uh, that's as high as possible, and you're driving as much revenue as you possibly can through, in effect, what is a fixed cost business. Increasingly, law firms have realised that they need to be far more flexible in their pricing. Uh, that simply offering the billable hour is not one that 
uh, many corporations or clients can uh, you know, really accommodate within, the, within their own business model, and they've needed to find a, a new way of accommodating that. So you've seen increasingly that uh, corporations are turning to law firms and saying, you know, we want an alternative fee arrangement, one that is based perhaps on a fixed fee, a flat fee, some kind of uh, risk sharing, uh, c- contingent bonuses, for example. And uh, for the last five years or so, that has been very much the focus of the innovations within the, within the legal in, in legal industry. But you know, for those people who go back and think about the business school training of the four P's of marketing, pricing is only one of the four P's. So I think when you think about what the new normal will bring, it's going to be uh, an emphasis on innovation, not just in terms of pricing, uh, but across many uh, other dimensions as well. And the, the the paper that you referenced, you know, it really highlights four particular areas. Pricing is certainly one, um, but one I would definitely emphasize is the idea of customer selection. Too many law firms try to be all things to all people for fear of losing out on revenue. I would argue that firms would be better served by focusing on very specific niches or segments and tailoring their services to match. Uh, a second area would be the scope of activities. Uh, you know, lawyers like to deliver and, of course, bill for all the things that were or were traditionally associated with the practice of law um, and pretty much nothing else. Firms should recognize that they are good at many things. Uh, not all things are things that clients will actually pay for, so they should be very particular in focusing on what is the right scope of activities. And then finally, firms have traditionally placed a premium on attorneys that make rain and acquire new clients. Um, you know, I think that f- focusing on keeping the business can be as important, if not more so, than finding the business in the first place. And there are many ways of keeping the business. If you think of ways that expand the relationship past the reliance on really just a, a single client partner, so pricing is certain certainly an area of innovation, but each of those other three areas are places where innovation still needs to take place. Great areas to dive into more deeply. If you would expand for our listeners, this concept of being in a niche or a niche and, you know, how you've seen that played out in either your firm or other law firms and, and really what the challenges are about really uh, focusing on a niche or niche. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll give you two very specific examples. Um, the reason I'm going to give two is because the first one, while it might be compelling, um, might be easy for too many people to discount. Um, you know, if you think about all the cases, all the potential lawsuits that are out there, a very broad range of things that people can actually sue for. Um, if you narrow it down, um, you find firms, for example, that are focused particularly on personal injury. Uh, Within personal injury, you can tunnel down yet further and get to vehicular accidents. And then finally, you might say, oh, I'm only going to be involved in those personal injury cases involving motorcyclists. And if you look at the firms that are out there, there's a there's an organization called the Law Tigers. Um, they have, of course, 1-800-LAW-TIGERS and lawtigers.com. They are an organization that's proven to be very successful by focusing very particularly on the needs of those who have been involved particularly in motorcycle accidents. And their emphasis on a very, very small niche, at first, it seems like that would be just too narrow and uh, would tend to 
you know, turn business away. I would argue because they built a, a business that focuses on a very particular segment and a very particular set of needs, uh, they're actually being incredibly more successful than they otherwise would be. Um, I don't know. I know, Nicole, that you spent a lot of time in Colorado. Uh, I don't know if in your time in Colorado you, you ride around on, on a Harley. Um, but one of the things that the Law Tigers offers is um, a free card holder benefits card. And if you sign up for the Law Tigers, they give you a toll-free 24-hour accident hotline. Um, they give you free legal advice on anything that may relate to the ownership of a, a motorcycle. And there's a couple of other things as well which are very uh, worthwhile if you are a, a bike rider. They have a $10,000 hit-and-run reward and a $10,000 bike theft reward. Now, those are all things that exist only if you register ahead of time with the Law Tigers. You may never have an accident or you may have an accident in five years yet to come, but you can be sure that the very first company that you will have on your speed dial if you are ever engaged in an accident is the Law Tigers because they have focused on your needs and they've worked out what it is to serve very specifically this particular segment. And as a result of their uh, focus, they've proven to be very successful. What a great example. It is a good example, but I think you know many lawyers out there may say, "Well, great, yeah, there are there are plaintiffs firm. I, I'm you know I'm in corporate defense. What what can what can I do? Um, you know, so there is another example I'd like to call upon, which is on the defensive side. There's a company, a firm in Chicago called Fletcher and Sippel, and they present themselves as a firm that is particularly focused on the transportation industry, and of course, um, you know. Based in Chicago, Chicago is really very much the rail hub of America. And they've said, um, among all the different transportation companies that we can focus on, we're going to look at particularly at railroads. And as a result of that, um, they've built a, a value proposition and they've focused their marketing only on that very specific segment. And you can see the ways in which their firm has grown. Um, I've actually done some analysis based on uh, court filings. And between 2009 and 2014, if you look at the proportion of all Seventh Circuit FELA cases, that's the Federal Employer Liability Act, that have been defended by Fletcher and Sippel, that's grown from 8% back in 2009 to more than 20% in 2014, which is the last year I have full data for. So, you know, the resistance that an, an attorney would naturally have when you say focus on a very particular segment, that, that makes perfect sense um, because they're going to be concerned that they're, 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 you know, turning business away. My argument is, yes, turn away the business that doesn't suit you and focus end up with a far greater share of that business for which you are best suited. And I think Fletcher and Sipple is a wonderful example of exactly that. That's fantastic. And it, it really, I think across many industries, when you talk about turning away business, it, it's those that are not confident that they'll be able to capture a segment that tend to get concerned, right? So I guess my advice has always been Try it, right? Try to try a niche and see if it works for you and continue to work to define yourself in that niche. But what advice would you give to others that have not tried niching and using a niche as a way to establish authority? Yeah, well, it, there's, there's really two parts to it. One is the targeting. You know, Fletcher and Sippel has said, we're going to focus very particularly on the very particularly on the transportation industry and within that on railroads. But equally, there's the tailoring. And if you look at the Fletcher and Sippel website and understand some of the ways in which they present themselves, you know, 
half of their partners are previously in-house railroad attorneys. And so they can talk the talk, they can walk the walk, they know what needs to be done in order to be most successful in serving railroads. So I would encourage other attorneys to think in a very similar way. It's not just a question of saying, oh, I'm going to focus on these clients. It's I'm going to focus on these clients and I'm going to do so in a way that's differentiated from everyone else. Right. So something very specific and very, and showing success in a particular area. If you would, I'm going to ask you to talk a bit more. We've, I've had different uh, guests talk about making rain or being a rainmaker and how to define rainmaking. And I've also had a guest talk about the fact that in their particular firm, rainmaking or business development was actually spread out amongst many and they focused on that, right? So not having two or three people that were fantastic at developing business, but having 30 people that were really strong at developing business. Uh, if you want to, if you would comment on both of those points about, you know, spreading out the responsibilities and really helping many develop business as one. And then also, I know you referenced keeping the business as an important point. And if you could expand on that, that'd be helpful. Yeah. So the, the whole issue with spreading rainmaking across a firm is a very interesting one. And it's really about, um, you know, in the same way that you don't put all your investments in a single stock, you're not putting all your rainmaking capabilities in the hands of a single person. And you know, when there are 30 people, not three people, going out and meeting with clients, then the range of opportunities that are likely to emerge, the number of contacts that exist for sharing information about the firm's value proposition is dramatically expanded. And I can only imagine in a situation like that, that the rate of growth uh, within that firm is uh, significantly greater than it otherwise would be. And, you know, I've heard an interesting theory about um, some of these huge mega mergers that are taking place in law firms today, uh, which is that when you have not 100 attorneys or even 1,000 attorneys, but several thousand attorneys within a firm, there's no one attorney who's going to drive the success or failure of the business compared to anybody else. And as a result, uh, the organization can be very much more disciplined and it can have um, far more consistent processes for engaging in business development. And I think overall, that's going to end up being very much more successful for these organizations. So, that spreading out rationale to me makes a great deal of sense. You're going to have to remind me of the second question. You noted in the response to the last question that keeping the business is, you know, as important or should be as important as getting new business. So uh, what recommendations or what experience have you had specific to best practices around keeping business? Well, this is something um, that technology firms, of course, do particularly well um, because they impose switching costs on their clients. Um, you know, it becomes difficult to move uh, from one provider to another if you have a large amount of data, uh, for example, that's embedded within the systems of one particular provider. And Today, of course, a law firm cannot impose a non-compete agreement on any uh, any one of their of their lawyers, and of course, then if a particular attorney, let's imagine that they're they're not spreading the rainmaking, that 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 everything is concentrated on, on that one attorney, it's very easy for that one attorney to pick up and go to another firm. Um, so there are really two dimensions by which 
um, firms can think about keeping the business. One is how do they just make it more difficult um, for a client to switch or and think of it in a different way. How can they make it more valuable for them to stay? And the second part is how do they ensure that the business is not concentrated in the hands of one particular partner? And I think there's a great example here in the in the form of Littler Case Smart. And I'm not sure if Littler is a firm that you are familiar with, but of course they're a very substantial firm focused very particularly on uh, labor and employment issues. And their their system, Littler Case Smart, Case Smart, brings in all the details of uh, complaints that might have been filed against corporations and stores them in a central privileged database, which is accessible to uh, Littler's attorneys, to the client's attorneys, and to the client's executives. And anytime they may have a question about a particular case, um, any member of those three groups can immediately gain access to the system. But beyond simply storing the information, they are adding several other things besides. One, they're adding project management. They have a very particular way in which they focus on taking care of these cases, and they do it consistently from one to the next. And the second thing is they're applying analytics on top of the data that they have. So the more information that Littler has available to them, the better insights they can provide to clients about how long is the case going to take, uh, what is the likelihood of reaching a settlement, and what is the potential um, scope or scale of any damages that may be awarded against uh, the, the client. So that's additional value that Littler is giving by virtue of having that data in the house. And then the third thing is, they are actually employing what they have very deliberately labeled as experienced flex time attorneys. So they have dedicated attorneys working in teams on each individual client who could not pick up and go with a client partner to another firm, but instead they're very much wedded to Littler. And it means that it becomes very difficult for someone to come along and, and take the business away. So Littler does a great job in offering value. They've plainly done a great job in terms of winning the business initially, but they're adding yet more value on top that means they're very unlikely to lose the business over time. And I'm sure that's doing a great deal to add to their profitability. Yeah, that is an, that's a that's a great example because it's not just avoiding the pain of change, right, through a technology conversion, but there's layers of value. Yes, la- layers would be a very good way of thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wow, that is a, a great example. Ian, let's talk a bit about um, productizing the delivery of legal services. Well, I think there's a, there's a great example. Um, again, it's not the sort of classical corporate um, situation that people face, uh, but it is one that nonetheless tells us a lot where um, the future direction is likely to be. Uh, this company uh, called Wevorse.com. And um, Wevorse is a collaborative approach to undertaking divorce or divorce. And um, it was founded by uh, an attorney, Michelle Crosby, who had the very unfortunate experience when she was nine years old of seeing her parents go through a very litigious divorce. And she was put up on the stand and she was asked by the attorney for one of her parents, if you were ever placed on a desert island and you had to choose one parent to live with for the rest of your life, who would it be? That's a very difficult question for particularly 
particularly for, for a nine-year-old. So this woman has dedicated really her life now to finding ways of reaching conclusions within divorces uh, that are very much more um, uh well, I guess for want of a better term, amiable. And she's relying not just on uh, mediation, but also a number of different elements, including technology, uh, neuroscience, psychology, and, and here's the kicker, pattern recognition. What she's done over time is Michelle has identified 18 different family archetypes. So you might say, well, no divorce is ever the same. Well, Michelle has said, well, they may not be the same, but lots of divorces are actually quite similar. And she's generated um, documents and forms and processes by which each of those different 18 um, marriages can be dissolved through an amicable divorce. And, uh, you know, a typical example might be, um, you know, if one person in the marriage managed all the finances, then the other person would probably need different information and require more education than the person whose job it was to, to manage all the money in the relationship. So Michelle has thought all those things through and she brings them to bear. So it's exactly what you're describing. It is a productization of something that otherwise you'd contemplate as being very uh, unique to each, each situation. She does this for every single person for a flat fee of $749, all in. And you know, a typical rate at which people end up going to court is you know, maybe like one in 100 actually end up in court. So she's done a great job of bringing the right tools to bear to come to great solutions. And um, you know, I think really achieved very many of her life goals in terms of making divorce just a, a simpler and uh, more productive process. Very interesting. Let's talk about business development a little bit further. Uh, each, I think of business development as having phases. The first phase, the initial phase, you know, gaining uh, interest from others through awareness campaigns, really getting the name of the firm or a particular um, attorney out, uh, developing leads. The second phase being more about education as to why a particular firm or uh, lawyer is uh, stronger at a particular area, educating around differentiation. The third uh, being, you know, really having someone agree to want to do business with you. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, you start negotiation. So identifying an opportunity through a lead creating awareness, second phase, education, third, expressing the desire to work together, and then, of course, securing a contractual arrangement. So we've talked, we talked about, you know, establishing a niche, you know, in your experience, is there a way to differentiate in each of those stages? And what would you recommend? Yeah, I think there's, there's one um, point of differentiation that probably applies across each of those three stages. And it may be not so much something that's obvious or evident to the prospective client as it is a way of thinking on the part of the partner himself or herself. And that is the concept of persistence. When you're engaged in business development, 
somebody is very unlikely to be in a situation where you arrive at their doorstep and they suddenly say, oh, my heavens, you're just the person I've been looking for. I have a huge litigation uh, that I need somebody to help me with today. Can you arrive next week with 10 of your closest associates and we'll take care of this? That is never going to happen. Instead, it's a, <laughs> if only it did. Uh, instead, it's a you know, multi-phase, often multi-year process of um, gaining an understanding gaining trust, and only then reaching the point where you effectively have permission to ask for the work. So someone needs to have persistence in uh, learning and going through each of those particular steps. Uh, but equally, they don't need to be overbearing. Um, you know, I don't know how many situations that you've been in where perhaps you've been on the receiving end of somebody who wants to develop uh, business, uh, and they're sending you um, three emails a week. Um, as, as nice as it might be, they're inviting you to the sky skybox twice a month um, you know it gets to the point where that level of persistence is just simply overbearing and it's not going to work so instead engage in persistent activities where you truly understand who I am as a person understand what my business challenges are and be ready to provide right provide the right advice at the right uh, particular moment and if someone is dedicated uh, to that level of attention then I think they ultimately can be very successful you know, I love the example you brought up because that I have to say, when I speak to lawyers that are either associates or new partners, when we talk about business development, the thing that I hear most is that they're uncomfortable with what they think business development is, which is inviting people to skyboxes and all of that. Right. So if you would elaborate, I mean, I, I'm a believer that this is a business engagement and the skybox type of uh, situation is best kept for celebrating the fact that we're going to do business together because we've made it, we have a contractual arrangement, but I'd love to hear your opinion on that. And I mean, from a, from a client perspective, if, if I am the client, I don't want to be indebted and to have a sense that my judgment will be clouded because uh, you took me to a Blackhawks game. Um, you know, instead, um, I want to know uh, that you are the right person to serve me, that you have the right skills. And actually, that's probably one way in which I encourage people to to change their, their frame of mind. People will say to me, you know, associates or partners that I'm coaching, um, you know, that they'll say, I don't want to sell people. And my response to that is, you are not selling to people. You're not selling yourself. You are demonstrating to them that you have the, the right skills and capabilities to address their solutions, to hold back on doing Something like that is a disjustice to you and a disjustice to or injustice to uh, uh, the people that you might be able to serve into the future. If you if you can make that shift in mindset, it becomes very much more comfortable and people have a far stronger purpose and level of comfort in, in making that kind of connection. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I often say you're representing in those conversations, all of the other people at the firm who are also doing fantastic work and can help the client do their job. So it really, you know, when you make it less personal, <laughs> it tends to be a much easier conversation. Well, yes. I'm, I'm not sure if you've read the books by uh, Dr. Erin Reeves. She says exactly that, which is that um, women particularly feel uncomfortable talking up their own capabilities, but feel very happy in describing the capabilities of others. So if people remain um, 
uncomfortable going out and engaging business development on their own, go out as effectively as a pair and talk up the other person and have them talk up you. That might be another key way in which you can overcome that discomfort. Absolutely. And then talking, of course, about skills in a way that, you know, through examples, I think can always be so helpful. And which, what a great lead into our next question, because many of our listeners are associates and new partners and people that are just taking on their business development responsibilities. And many are uncomfortable with that. So, your advice to them or advice that you've heard that you'd want to convey to a broader group of people about business development and starting off? Yeah, I, I have three very specific um, points of advice. The first is do great work. Uh, this is simply the most important form of marketing you can do. It's the best way to build trust among clients, um, but it's also the central method of gaining respect and credibility among those who are best positioned to give you work, the partners in your firm. Uh, the second thing is, and people I think tend to um, downplay this, is maintain the friendships and connections that you gained during your time at law school. Um, the people that you knew at law school, even if they are competing firms, are all of them potential sources of business into the future. Those people are going to grow in their careers. And in five to 10 years, you're going to find that those are the people who have gone in-house and are now in a position to send you business. Um, Alternatively, they may still be outside counsel at a competing firm, but they can refer work to you when their own firms lack the resources or are simply conflicted out of a particular matter. And then third, and this is probably going to come as no surprise given some of the other things that I've said today, um, pick a niche where you can build a reputation and a stock of relevant intellectual capital and make sure that the, the chosen domain that, you, that you're focusing on deals with an area of law or a specific set of, of clients that, that you like. And then really research, write, teach, and practice the heck out of it. Uh, you know, doing, Do everything you can to write white papers or write a blog, uh, but more, more than anything else, find that place where you feel comfortable making a name for yourself. Um, because when you're truly passionate about a particular area of law, um, then it's not going to feel like work being in practice or going out and building that client base. You're going you're gonna to love every single moment of it. Excellent. Excellent. Fantastic advice. And, and really the kind of advice that I think within any firm structure can be used. You know, there is an opportunity for an individual to take an interest in an area and, and really distinguish themselves, I would say in, in almost all situations. So Ian, you're, you're very, um, you have energy around what you do. What is the most um, enjoyable part of the work that you do? Well, I think it's uh, affecting change and uh, really bringing meaning uh, to the lives of people who are very well educated and very accomplished and um, you know just need a little direction in order to find a, a, an area that they that they truly love I think when you take control over business development then you take control of your career you can choose the clients the areas of practice the segments that are most appealing to you and you will find a career that's just immensely fulfilling if you are passive in business development and simply rely on people to, to bring you work uh, you're never going to have that control. Um, so allowing people that level of agency is to me very exciting. Any last points before we say goodbye? 
Well, I truly appreciate uh, the opportunity to share some of these thoughts for you. Uh, I'm very excited to, to see Left Foot pick up and uh, run forward very successfully. I think you have an excellent organization, and uh, I, I wish you the best in all the future intellectual capital that you have the opportunity to share with your, with your listeners. Excellent, Ian. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.